Well, welcome, 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 everybody. It's so good to uh, see you all here this morning um, as we are just about to start a brand new three-week series to the book of Haggai. Uh, quick show of hands, how many of you have uh, read the book of Haggai? There's no shame, it's okay. Quick show of hands, how many of you have like, heard a sermon about the book of Haggai? Okay, awesome. How many of you think that I'm making up the name Haggai? And what, no, I'm just kidding. No, we're so glad that you're, you're with us this morning. It is a real book. It's a, it's a minor prophet, which means that it's a shorter one. It's the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Yet, even though it is a minor prophet, the message that God has through the book of Haggai has major implications for our understanding of God's kingdom and our understanding of our role within his kingdom. And so as we get ready to dive into the book of Haggai over the next three weeks, um, we're going to, um, I'm just going to challenge you, if it's at all possible, to do your best to make it all three weeks so that we can get a holistic picture of what the message of Haggai is and how that affects our lives and the vision of God's kingdom renewed in our hearts. So will you join me in a word of prayer as we go through Haggai chapter one this morning? Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are the giver of all good gifts. We thank you that the earth is yours and everything in it. We thank you that this is a day you have made. We rejoice and are glad in it. Your mercies are new every single morning, including this one. So we rejoice and we worship and we thank you. God, we thank you that as we are able to worship through singing and worship through a time of communion and worship through giving, that now we get to worship through the reading and study of your word. And I pray that as we do, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us, Lord. And I pray that whether we're in this room or listening online later, that if nothing else, the message of your love for everyone who hears my voice, may that message permeate deep within the fiber of our being. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we, uh, we have uh, my wonderful in-laws are in town this week, and, and so what that means is that yesterday we're trying to do some tidying. Uh, Steph is great at making a, a warm home, hospitable home. Uh, she, her level of cleanliness, my wife Steph, when she says something is clean, it's really clean. When I say it's clean, it's like, uh, mediocre at best. And so she has a great eye for that. And so we get everything ready, and last night, Inevitably, uh, if some of you have young kids or had young kids know that when you clean something up, almost immediately someone just messes it up, right? So uh, we, got, we were there and uh, Alicia goes in, grabs her Legos and just pours them all out onto the floor. And outside of the fact that when you step on a Lego, it hurts, uh, Legos are incredible toys. I loved Legos growing up. Steph loved Legos growing up. Our girls enjoy Legos. And, and there are these three specific Legos that I wanted to point our attention to because um, the first thing is if you've had Legos before or if you had kids who had Legos or know someone, you know that they have those um, instruction booklets, right? And it just shows like number one and it shows the steps and then it builds it on until you're done. And also, either on the back of the box or in that instruction booklet in the back, there will also be something that's like alternative designs or alternative things that you can make. And so I wanted to bring these three up here uh, because these are Legos, or these are Duplos from Elise. For those of you that are listening online later, it's Duplo set one eight, or 10858 if you want to look it up while I'm referring to it. Um, so this is Lego set, uh, my first pet pals, and it's 10858. I'm not even getting paid by Legos to do this. This is just fun. And so uh, if you can turn attention to the screen, this is the box that it comes in, and you know it shows that there's, for those of you who are listening online, there's a red dog, there is a blue cat, 
There is a yellow duck. One of those is realistic to real life colors. The other one, I'll let you pick. But um, we look at that and they have these three different things. And this is the, the design. They have those simple instructions and you build it. Now, I want to go, turn your attention to the next slide, is inside the booklet, they also have, if we could turn to the next slide, they have another creation that takes some of the parts. I don't know what this is. I think it's the duck riding on the top of a sailboat, but I don't know if that was the design. But here's the thing. In order to make that, what do I have to do? Well, I have to kind of take apart some of these things. I have to take off, um, you know, the ears of the cat, put the eyes of the cat on top of the mouth of the duck, put the eyes of the duck backwards, which is creepy, have the ear here, and then I grab the body of the um, cat, turn it around, put it here, and then I put this on the bottom. So, that is the most impressive thing that is going to happen today. I just wanna let you guys know. Uh, it's funny because people in the first service clap too, and I'm like, thank you for the encouragement. This was literally made for three-year-olds. So the fact that you're applauding me, I don't know if I should be excited or offended or we're just gonna move on. So you see this duck sailboat head, and when we look at this, in order to build this, what had to happen, right? I had to take apart what the original design was in order to build something new. And here's the thing, I could not build the red dog, the blue cat, the yellow duck, and this, I could not do them both at the same time. Why? Because in order to build one of them, I would have to take pieces apart in order to combine it together. So I'd have to prioritize. Is, is doing it these three, um, the original way, is that the right way? Yes, no, doesn't matter. Is building a duck sailboat, is that right or wrong? It, it could be either one. The point is, is that prioritizing it is what allows it to make sure which set or which model I'm actually going to build. And with that said, all of us, you, me, anyone listening online, we are building something. We're either building our relationships, we're building our careers, we're building our bank accounts, we're building homes, we're building our reputation, we're building our character, we're building our discipleship and following Christ's likeness. We are building something. And in the end, like, is building, is building a career, is that wrong? Of course not. God gives us gifts and he wants us to use it use them. But is, is it wrong if we, take, we have to kind of combine what God has created us to make, to, to build his kingdom? We have to, we're going to have to prioritize whether we're going to build his kingdom the way he designed it, or whether we're going to take pieces and bits and parts of that and to kind of create our own life the way we want it, how we think it's going to look best. And we have to just kind of be okay with the fact that we have to choose both. Again, can you build a life without God? Yes, but is a life built without God going to be the everlasting life that we're called to live, the life and life to the full that we're called to live? No. And so what we want to focus on is the emphasis of prioritizing what it is we're building. We're all building something. What is it that we're putting as a priority? And so our main point for this morning in your notes is that God can't be just one of our priorities as we build our lives. He must be the main priority so our lives build his kingdom. He can't just be one of our priorities as we build our lives. We can't just say, okay, I'm gonna you know, build my life and I'm gonna throw a little bit of a God here, throw a little bit here, and sometimes I'll do that. In the end, that doesn't work. 
that God is not one of our priorities. He must be our main priority so that our lives don't end with us, that our lives are part of building God's kingdom, which never ends. And so that's what we're going to talk about as we begin Haggai chapter one. Now, if you would like to turn in the church Bible, Haggai chapter one is on page 1473. There's a church Bible in the rack in front of you. If you brought your own Bible, um, we're going to be in Haggai chapter one. We're going to go through all 15 verses today. Um, and as you are turning there, there's a lot of context. Again, some of us have read Haggai. Some of us have heard sermons. Some of us think it's fake. Um, it's real. And being able to get context of what's happening in Haggai I could probably explain it in the next three to four minutes in order to catch you up. But what I would like to do instead is to direct your attention to the screens in a moment as we watch a short video by The Bible Project. If you've not heard of The Bible Project, uh, they do a great way of summarizing books of Bibles and explaining the meaning and the context. They also have thematic videos. So The Bible Project, free videos, one for each book of the Bible. It's great. And so I want to turn your attention because in one minute and 20 seconds, we'll be able to get kind of caught up to where we are here as we begin in Haggai chapter one. So will you please turn your attention to the screens as we watch this video together. The book of the prophet Haggai. It's one of the smaller prophetic books, but crucially important in the overall story of the Hebrew Bible. So for centuries, the Hebrew prophets had been accusing Israel of breaking their covenant with God through idolatry and injustice. And they warned that God would send the great empire of Babylon to take out Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and haul off the people into exile. And it all happened in the year 587 BC. But that wasn't the end of the story. The prophets also believed that there was still hope and that God would one day bring back a transformed remnant of his people Israel to live in a new Jerusalem where God's presence would live in their midst. Now, when we turn to Haggai, the year is 520 BC, nearly 70 years after the exile. And the Babylonian empire has recently collapsed and the world is now ruled by the Persians. Now, they allowed the return of any exiled Israelites who wanted to go back to Jerusalem, which still lay in ruins. And so, under the leadership of a high priest named Joshua and Zerubbabel, an heir from the line of David, and a group of exiles, they all returned and began to rebuild the city and their lives. Remember the story from the book of Ezra, chapters 1 to 6. So, our hopes are high and the future seems very bright, but it's not, actually, at least from Haggai's point of view. Dun, dun, dun. Like, anyways, anyway, I, I enjoy it. So, it gives a context. They're coming back from Jerusalem, or sorry, from uh, exile to build the temple. That's why they're there, is to rebuild the temple and to rebuild their lives. And so, the, the book of Haggai is divided up into four different uh, messages or, or uh, speeches that Haggai gives on behalf of the Lord to the people. One of them we're going to tackle today. Two of uh, the second one we're going to tackle next week. And the last two are um, both on the same day that they were given. And so we're going to hit on that on the third week. So with that said, as we dive into Haggai chapter one, the first part of your notes that I want to turn our attention to is this. It says, when God is just one of our priorities, we will find ways to put our wants above his will. We will find ways to put our wants above his his will. Let's start reading verse Haggai 1, chapter 1. Starts off, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Now, if you remember the video we just saw, Joshua was the high priest, as we just heard, and then Zerubbabel was 
an heir from the line of David. And so he carried a lot of importance within the, the Jewish culture because the belief was that a line would come from, um, the Messiah would come from the line of David. So Zerubbabel holds an important part in the story of Israel. Now, this message is for the leaders and to the leaders right off the bat. And we will see that Haggai 1 is, and Haggai as a book is a book about the vision of God's kingdom, about what it means for our lives, how we impact it. Haggai 1 is also very much a chapter about leadership. How do the leaders lead? Either people toward, closer to God or further away. So verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Guys, it had been almost seven decades since they were in exile. They were sent back for the purpose of building the Lord's house. What does this tell us? That it tells us that the people were looking at it and saying, well, you know, it's not time yet. We will get to that. We need to work on our stuff first. How do we know that's what is happening in their hearts? Let's continue on in verse 3. Verse 3 is when God calls them out and he says, Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. And then verse 4, I'm sorry, here's where it calls him out. Well, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, while my house, remains in ruin? Now, let's give an example of, of paneled houses. Paneled houses um, were for the upper class. People who were able to afford paneled houses were able to not only be able to have the stones in order to build their homes, they were able to purchase the wood in order to create the panels, in order to put it on the outside to, to kind of block off the view of the stone. The stone didn't look as nice. So to have a paneled house was saying that we, were, we had enough money to make our home look good. We, we wanted to have a good curb appeal so the resale value could come up. But we see this idea of they, um, sorry, the Lord is saying, is it you say it's not time to rebuild the temple, which is why you are here, why I brought you back to be able to rebuild the city of God and the temple, which symbolizes God's presence amongst his people. That inside the temple, there was a holy place and then the most holy place. And then they had the Ark of the Covenant and on top was a mercy seat that two cherub angels that were just about to touch. And it talks about how God's presence rested right there on top of the mercy seat. And so we see that God's presence in the midst of the people was symbolized by the temple, and yet the people are saying, it's not time for us to focus on your presence. It's time for us to rebuild our lives so that things look fancy and nice, and it shows our status that we're upper, upper class and, and not like people who can just afford stones. We have paneled houses. They're putting their wants above God's will. How easy is it for us, for us, us, not just you, but me. I'm not talking at you. I'm allowing the word of God to talk to all of us. How easy is it for us to rationalize that we can put working for God later? How easy is it for us to say, once I get my things figured out the way that I want them, well then, Lord, yes, of course I will serve you. I will do what you ask me to do once everything's ready, once I'm good with the way my life is. Church, if we waited until life was the way we wanted it in order to start serving God, then we would never serve him because our life is never exactly the way we want it. And isn't it beautiful that God doesn't require us to be perfect before we are used by him? Isn't it beautiful to know that he uses imperfect vessels like you and like me to help build his kingdom, that 
The kingdom of God is made up of stones that are centered on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And they may, we may not all fit well perfectly together. We may be a little misshapen. And yet that is the picture of the, the house of God, the people of God, the presence of God. Imperfect people based on the cornerstone of Jesus, building our lives for the edification and the glory of the gospel. And so we see that God calls his people out in verse 4. The CSB study Bible asks it this way. Why were these leaders spending lavishly on their own homes and giving no priority to building God's house? Why do we, you and me, why do we think it's okay to put our wants, our comfortable house, the way we want our lives, to have everything look just perfect to everybody on the outside? Why do we think that our wants should ever supersede God's will? The reason they came back was to build the temple. And, and maybe you're saying, well, yeah, they needed to get their own stuff first. Maybe for some of you, maybe when you first came to know the Lord, you were all in. I mean, people would say, how are you doing? Saved, how are you? You know, like you would just find ways to talk about the gospel at any point and to serve and go out of your way. And then when it seems like the work of the Lord is done, how easy it is for us to just slowly turn our eyes away from his throne and start building our own. So we build our lives the way we want them, put our ways above his will, and miss out on the life he has for us. Again, he can't just be one of our priorities as we build our lives. He must be the main priority so our lives build his kingdom. We continue on. He says this in uh, the New American Commentary, R.A. Taylor and E.R. Clendenin says this way, talks about the, how easy it is for us to get caught up in our own lives. He's, they say, far too often, the affluence of God's people, rather than encouraging a self-imposed measure of personal sacrifice in order to advance the cause of God's work in the world, leads instead to a hoarding of resources and to an ugly self-indulgence. How common it is that affluence amongst God's people doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to give generously to the kingdom of God. It may mean that we will keep living up into our margin and then say, well, God, I'll give you whatever's left over. But instead of creating, as they talk about, the self-imposed sacrifice of saying, okay, I know I have more than what I need. I don't always have what I want. I have what I need, and because I have what I need, I can give a tithe to the church, and I can maybe be able to give an offering over and above, and I'll be able to do that so that the work of the kingdom of God can be expounded both in our local community and the global community. And instead of doing that, we often say, well, I can only hold on, so I'm only going to not tithe to God, but tip God. Not give an offering, but just give whatever's left over. And so we see this dynamic that we cannot just add God as another priority onto our list. In fact, Timothy Keller says it this way, God is not one more resource to use to help us achieve our agenda. He is a whole new agenda. He's not another priority that we put on our list of priorities and check off as if that's all it takes, but rather we let God check our hearts to see if he's the only, the main priority, because if we seek him first, all the other things would come afterwards. The next point in your notes talks about this, that verses five through six show us that God may need to allow seasons of dissatisfaction 
so we can find our ultimate satisfaction in him. Verse five says, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. Uh, The Hebrew for that literally means setting your heart on your ways. In other words, what is it that you, that I, that we set our hearts on that we think will bring us ultimate satisfaction? Is it the opinions of other people and getting their affection and their attention? Is it the possessions that we have and wanting to look good with our paneled houses and curb appeal? Is it the productivity we have and how, how well we do in our performances? Is it the, the, the seeking after other things? Is it turning to alcohol or turning to drugs or turning to things other than God in order to say, well, that will be what saves us. That will be what gives me satisfaction. That, that life is hard and, and taking a little bit here and sacrificing a little bit there of what I know God wants for me for what I want, we think will ultimately satisfy. Verse five says, what are you setting your hearts on to bring satisfaction? Why? Because verse six tells us this, that you've planted much, but you harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your full. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Can I get an amen for money that just seems to go out of our pockets? See, there's this idea that if what we think will, per- will bring us happiness and satisfaction, God fully has the right as the one true God, as the only foundation upon which we build our lives. He absolutely has the right, and as a loving father would, to be able to say, you're going down a wrong path. I'm going to create dissatisfaction, and the things that you seek, you will not receive, because you need to learn to seek me, and if you ask, you shall receive. He needs to turn our attention away from that which we think will satisfy, so we can fix our eyes upon he alone who does. So we continue. Verses 7 through 8, or 7 through 11, I'm sorry, tell us this. If we seek his kingdom, we will have what we need. If we ignore his kingdom to build our own, we will recognize how much we need him. Starting in verse 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Again, let's just turn our attention to the Lord Almighty, verse 7. We've already seen that two other times within the first six verses. We've talked about this before, that this doesn't just mean God who is strong, that this is specifically a militaristic term, the idea of God as a warrior or the Lord of the commander of angel armies. And so it's painting a picture of saying, I've brought you back to this place. You've gone to exile because you disobeyed my covenant and living after me, built your own life rather than my kingdom. And yet I've still fought for you and brought you back home. And we see this Lord Almighty comes several times throughout this 38 verse book. And so we turn attention to that. But then we also turn attention to, again, verse seven says, give careful thought to your ways. Set your hearts on your ways. So the first time he's showing us, set your hearts on your ways. What are the things you're looking for that don't satisfy? This time he says, set your ways, and now go do the work I've called you to to build my house. Verse 8, go up into the mountains, bring down timber, and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Verse 9, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. See, 
God isn't just randomly saying things that are going to happen. He's going back to his word and saying, in Deuteronomy 28, Moses is sharing a message to to the people before they enter into the promised land or as they're in that journey. And what he's saying is there's obeying God, disobeying God. There are blessings when you obey. There are curses when you disobey. And when we start to compare the list, we start to see a pattern. Now, this past week, uh, Mary Bramlett, who's our children's ministry director, who does a great job, um, they have Faith Rock Kids, which is Wednesday nights from first grade through fifth grade. Um, I encourage you to, to have your kids or grandkids come if they're not already. What she does is she does a message or a teaching, a lesson, and then she sent an email this past week in order to say, you know, as parents, for us to kind of know what was discussed and how to maybe further along the discussion. Here's what she said um, part of, in part uh, after this past week. She wrote, this afternoon in Faith Rock, we talked about how God gives us choices. He lets us choose to love and obey him or not, just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. Of course, there are consequences with our choices, and he didn't just let us have to try to figure it out on our own, but he gave us the Bible as a tool to know and to follow him if we choose to avoid the pitfalls of life. In other words, it's saying God isn't just being haphazard in how you know, these, diso- these curses we're experiencing. He's saying, if you don't obey me, I love you enough to tell you the truth. And the truth is, if you plant, you're not going to harvest. If you try to have new wine, it's going to not work out for you. And he paints these pictures that we see when you compare Deut- uh, Haggai 1 verse 10 to Deuteronomy 28, 38, and 40. Here's what Deuteronomy says. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees because your country, I'm sorry, throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. Again, how easy is it for us to say we are doing a lot of things. We are earning our keep. And yet when it comes down to, hey, I've harvested this ground. I've, I've made these olive plants great. I've, I've plotted the, the, the wine and the grapes and it's, the beautiful, it's a beautiful um, winery. This is all great. In the end, our efforts cannot cause the growth of those things. What does? Who does? God. If we seek him first, We will have what we need. But if we seek our own kingdom, our own lives, make ourselves on the throne, not of grace, but the throne of ruling. If we do that, then we're going to realize that we need him. We can't make things grow. We can't make our families the way we want them on our own. We can't make our career the way we want it. We can't do any of this on our own because even the ability to make money was given to you out of the gifts that God has created you to have. We've talked about it before. People call themselves self-made men and women. Well, which part of yourself did you actually make? God is the one who formed us. And so we think about this idea that when we focus on our own lives, we realize our need for him. But what does Matthew 6, 33 say? That if we seek first his kingdom, his righteousness... All these things will be given unto you. Not that we're going to get everything we want, but we will have what we need day by day, his daily bread, to make it through whatever we are facing. So we see that if we seek his kingdom, we will have what we need. But if we try to build our own, we'll realize we need him. 
That recently Shaylin and Elise uh, have been playing Narnia, which means that they want me to be Peter. And uh, Shaylin, even though she's the oldest one, wants to be Lucy. And Elise, who's the youngest one, wants to be uh, Susan. I think it's like power dynamic. And so, um, you know, they want to play Narnia. And so yesterday Shaylin says at lunch, like, Daddy, can you grow up to be a princess? And I said, well, I mean... If a royal family has daughters, they're princesses. If a royal family has sons who are a prince, then they can marry a woman and she can become a princess. She's like, so I can be queen? It's like, no, she's like, I'm going to be queen of England. I'm like, hold on, there there are rules. Um, And so just encouraging because what happens? I'm like, well, you could be like the king of the Chafaris clan. She's like, no. I want to be the the queen of um, Angelus Glen, which is the, the street we live on. And so she's like, I'm going to be the queen of that. I'm like, well, technically, you'd be the princess. Your mommy's the queen and I'm the king. But it's okay. So, but there's this natural proclivity, this natural tendency in our lives to want to be king or queen or master of our own souls, the captains of our own destiny, the ones who think that we determine what's going to happen in our lives. And we will turn to God if we are in need, but we think that we don't really need him until then. And so because of this natural tendency for us to put ourselves on the throne, If we seek that, our wants above his will, we seek ultimate satisfaction in that, we build our kingdom rather than his, then we're going to recognize often painfully when we get into the muck and the mire and the mud of the prodigal son in Luke 15, it's the moment of rock bottom brokenness that we recognize, I didn't need those things. I didn't need to be on the throne. I needed God to be on the throne in my life. I didn't need to be king. I needed to surrender my life to the king. I don't need to seek my own validation because Jesus paid it all. There's nothing we can do. We couldn't earn it. We don't deserve it. But still, God gave his love. Jesus gave his life away. So we close with this next, this final point. We must constantly... The last point of your notes, we must constantly commit ourselves to God's message as the foundation upon which we build our lives. We must constantly commit ourselves. This is no halfway committal. This is no, I'm going to build part of my Lego Duplo set and I'm going to leave the other part this way. I have to choose and prioritize what it is I'm going to focus on. This is not, I'm going to start following God, turn my attention away from God and only run to him when we need it. Now, when we run to him, does he come and respond to us? Absolutely. Such is the grace of our God that he can still remove our sins as far as the east is from the west, that he could wipe us clean and make us white as snow. How good our God is. Yet, when we see in verses 12 through 15, we're going to see what happens when the people commit themselves to the truth of God's message. We're going to see what that message is and how that impacts us in our lives. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then verse 13, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. Listen, God has shared the message that he is with us, throughout the entirety of history. I mean, God walked amongst the garden with Adam and Eve. 
It symbolized how he was present with his people while they were in the wilderness because there's a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that they would look up and know he was with them and he would guide them and he would keep them where they were. We see when they built up the tabernacle in the wilderness that there would be what we talked about, the, the holy of holies in which upon the mercy seat was a presence of God that would be present in the midst of his people. We see that continued on in the temple. We see that throughout the fact that Jesus, is, according to Isaiah 7, is Emmanuel, which means God with us. We see that at the end when he was ascending into heaven after dying a horrible death, raising back to life, and as he was ascending into heaven, he says, go into the nations and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all the things I've commanded you, and lo, I will be with you, even to the end of the age. We see how he, the Holy Spirit was given in John 14 and 16 when Jesus says, listen, I'm going to leave a paraclete, a guide, a comforter, someone to come alongside you, and it's better for you that I leave because of what he wants to do in you and through you when you give your life to him. And then he talks about when Paul is before King Agrippa and he gives his testimony. God gave him the words. When Stephen was, was martyred, God was with him and he saw the presence of, of an angel saying that I'm with God now. We see that in Revelation at the end of all things, we will see that the new heaven will come down to the new earth because we have a God who does not stay in heaven, stay in comfort, nor should we stay and try to build our own lives, but rather we have a God who gives everything away so that we could experience the life that he has for us. Why? Because God is with us. That's the message. That if we built our lives on the truth of who Jesus is, that he is Emmanuel, God with us, that he came from the riches of heaven to the rags of a manger to Again, live a perfect life, die a horrible death on our behalf, but be raised to new life. If we believe in the message of God is with us through the person, fully God and fully man of Jesus Christ, that is the foundation upon which we build our lives. 1 Corinthians 3.11, there's only one foundation upon which we can build, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Matthew 7, the idea that we build our lives upon him and his word and obeying it, that when we see this idea, I am with you, if we get that message, our entire lives will change. Now, there's a story I want to share with you that there's a guy named Brian Berg. Brian Berg is a Guinness World Record holder for card stacking. And so um, I know when you guys showed up this morning, you're like, you know what I really hope the sermon's about? Legos and cards, <laughs> you're welcome. And so um, we look at this idea of he's a world, you know, world-renowned card stacker, and he um, was asked by some people in Britain, they, people were polled in Britain to say, what is it that you would want someone to build a house of cards? And the response was Big Ben and the House of Parliament. So if we could show the picture here, these are freestanding cards that the guy with the blonde hair with the, um, the darker blue shirt, uh, a little bit further on the left-hand side, his name's Brian Burke. He's the one that created these. are all freestanding. It took him over seven days to build this uh, with Big Ben, with a clock face full of jokers. And the guy next to him, his name is Mark Rushton. And the, it was on a poll they wanted to see. People said, we want to see someone build Parliament and Big Ben. But part of the plan was we want to see that happen because we want to see it blown over. So you see that Mark Rushton, again, let's go to the next picture, just completely just blows over 
Brian's work for over seven days. Again, these freestanding cards that was meticulously put exactly in the right place. And yet, it's so easy. It takes seven weeks to build and seconds to destroy. Building a house of cards is not intended to last forever. Building our lives with us at the center, with our wants, our will, our way as the center, will not last forever. In fact, we may not take, he took seven days to build this house of cards. If we're not careful, we may make, take seven decades building our kingdom. And then at the last minute, whoosh, it's blown away. And we realize we've missed the point. Because if we build our lives on anything or anyone outside of the message that God is with us through the person of Jesus Christ, and that by giving our lives and surrendering to him as the leader of our souls and as our Lord and Savior, that if we do that, then we can have everlasting life. And what we do with our lives as we build our lives, it's for the purpose of building his kingdom. And we have to prioritize which one we're going to choose, our kingdom or his, our ways, his will, our dissatisfaction coming from things to ultimate satisfaction living for him. We must decide, we must prioritize, and we must do it now. Because we wouldn't want to build our house of cards and wait to the last minute to see it blown over. Rather, we say, God, if we build up a house of cards that's far from you, destroy it now so like the prodigal son, I can come back to the father's arms and fix my eyes on my maker. That the confidence we have in life, the basis of the message of Jesus Christ being with us and saving us from our sins is what we hear. That's the only foundation upon which we build our lives. And Stephen Furtick, I used this quotation just a few weeks ago, but it's good and we're using it again. And if I didn't say that, you may not have remembered. That's okay. But in other words, he says this, Stephen Furtick says, God based his argument on his own ability, not ours. He says, I'm with you. I won't leave you. That's your confidence. That's your hope. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's not what we do or what we earn. It's the fact that because God is who God says he is and sent Jesus, who Jesus is, who he says he is, to die for us that so we may have eternal life so we may be who he says we are, children of God. And we have the opportunity to build our lives upon his love as the firm foundation. As we close, the last two verses say this, verse 14 and 15. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. See, if you were to imagine that we have this, these two, this Duplo set again, and you have to decide which you're going to build. We're either going to build our lives according to the will of God or we're going to try to build our own. But if we end up building our own, we, we have to be able to choose what it is that we're going to do. We can't halfway commit because for the sake of building one, we must stop doing the other and focus and prioritize that which is most important to us. Does it mean we can't have a career? Again, no. But is your career focused on what God wants for you and you're a light for him in the midst of what you're doing? 
Does it mean we can't have certain things? No. But it means that we recognize what we're truly seeking is relationship with him. And if we do that first and seek it first, all these other things can come. So what is it you are living for? Which kingdom are you building? See, uh, in the New American Commentary, R.A. Taylor and E.R. Clendenin, again, they give us a modern parallel to what it is that the church of now has to do with Haggai's original message. It says this, In many ways, the modern church mirrors the spiritual lethargy and unresponsiveness of Haggai's original audience. But the fact that his post-exilic community eventually responded to the prophetic word and committed themselves, not half-heartedly, they committed themselves to a great task for God's glory, that holds out hope that we too may lay aside every quest of personal advantage that detracts from the greater cause of the kingdom of God in our midst. If they could do it, so can we. If they can fix their eyes not on their own homes with paneled walls, but upon God's house and his kingdom being built across the world, then we can do it too. And the reason the paneled walls are specifically important for us, we talked about it earlier, we're going to bring it back full circle because you know the other time we hear about paneled walls? We hear it when Solomon talks about building the temple in 1 Kings chapter 6. In fact, we see 1 Kings chapter 6, 37 and 38 say this, the foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid in the fourth year in the month of Ziv. In the 11th year in the month of Bul, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. He had spent seven years building it. That is what God had called him to do. It wasn't David that was going to build the temple. It was Solomon. And so he, he builds the temple and he does what he's supposed to do. But we didn't see paneled walls in there, did we? No, no. In fact, do you know that's the very end of 1 Kings 6? Do you want to see what the first sentence of 1 Kings 7, 1 is? It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. However, the emphasis is added because he put more than twice the amount of time on building his own palace. His palace was bigger than the temple of God. It was more grandiose than the temple of God. And if you were to go to 1 Kings 7, verse 3 and 7, what you would see is it talks about how his palace had paneled walls. They looked beautiful on the outside. It was this beautiful thing. And he focused more time building his own house than building God's house. Yeah, he did what he was supposed to do. And then he took twice as long doing what he wanted to do. So for us, many of us, maybe we've spent decades building our own lives. And it's time for us to realize we need to build God's kingdom again. We need to surrender our lives to him again. We need to lay down the tools that are used for building our own throne that we sit upon and we offer up those tools to go to the throne of grace that, and say, how do you want to use this, God? Some of us, maybe you've been like Solomon. You've done things for the Lord in the past and say, hey, what is God doing in your life? Or what has God done for you? If our response is something that he did 15 years ago, rather than what he did 15 days ago, there may be a, a creeping separation or there may be a moment in which we're not still learning from God. We can't rest on our laurels. We're able to continue to rest in his love. And for some of us, we need to surrender for the very first time because we've tried living our way, building our kingdom, putting our way above his will. We've tried finding satisfaction in other things. And if we're honest with ourselves, 
It can be good for a while. But in the moment when we're by ourselves and our tears are staining the pillow and our hearts are broken because what we thought we sought after ends up not being worth seeking after. In those moments, may we have the grace, the courage, the humility to turn from that life and fix our eyes on our Father who welcomes us home and build our lives upon the message that God is with us through Jesus and we build upon his love, for that is a firm foundation. We put our trust in him alone, and if we do that, things still happen, but we will not be shaken. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, God. I pray that as we are processing through this sermon, that we were maybe challenged, maybe frustrated, maybe encouraged, maybe confused, maybe put off. I mean, whatever it is, Lord, God, as it is, the word is shared towards you, Lord. You can take it and move it and shape it however it is that we need to hear it, Lord. And so I pray, God, that you would make and shape and mold us and challenge us and, and help us to see ways in which we may be falling short, ways in which we may be focusing on what we want more than your way and your will, ways in which we may... We're trying to make ourselves the kings and queens of our lives and sitting upon our throne rather than turning to you who sit on the throne of grace that we may approach with confidence. Why? Because Jesus Christ, who said, I am with you, died for us so that we may have eternal life. So Lord, I pray that you would worship or we would worship you now. We'd be able to fix our eyes upon you and build our lives upon your love as the one true foundation the foundation of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. And lastly, the letter that or the email that Mary sent out when talked about, you know, the idea of how the word, the Bible shows us the positive, the negative, the blessings, the curses. You know, the last part that she says that God, which she was teaching the kids, that God still loves us even when we make bad choices. That is the good news. No matter how long we've toiled in one way, no matter how long we've built our house of cards, no matter how long we've put our will, our way above God's will, it's never too late. If you are still here, God is not done. And so as you leave this morning, we would love to pray with you. We cannot wait to see you, to worship with you next week. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week. Thank you so much for joining us.